Thank you, worship team, for leading some songs of praise this morning. And um, sometimes, uh, often, I'll stand up here and I'll reflect upon how uh, blessed we are as they lead us in worship and song. But I uh, just even just joining together in prayer and just that prayer there is like, man, what a wonderful joy as we go to Lord in prayer together. It's, uh, thank you for leading us in that, uh, Brother Vincent. Well, I want to uh, warmly uh, wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you've. Uh, enjoyed your time together with family and friends uh, this uh, holiday, and I see some of you are back for the Thanksgiving break, so we're glad to have you here uh, as well. Just uh, always good to have our, uh, our sons and daughters, in a sense, uh, back again, and uh, it is a joy to see them all growing up as men and women of the Lord and, and uh, walking with God, I trust. Well, uh, it's, uh, it is always a, a joy, this uh, last uh, Sunday and Thanksgiving and November, kind of a, a Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, sometimes I'm just tempted to just get up here and just say, all right, you know, I know you're all ready to bring your sacrifices of praise. We're just going to uh, set aside this sermon. I'm going to stop talking and just let you all stand up and give thanks to God. Well, you you want to do that? Okay, I see a lot of people. Oh, amen. <laughs> yeah, Dale, always ready to give praise. Lord. appreciate that, brother. Um, but I would just love to do that one day. But as the church grows larger, we just, you know, uh, it's too hard to do. You wouldn't give opportunity for everyone to share. And, uh, but uh, I hope you had a chance to share around your table, your tables uh, this uh, season to give thanks to God. Um, my family and I, we had an opportunity to give thanks and uh, reflect upon uh, God's goodness this past year. Uh, even though uh, life is uh, <clears throat> has life for, for us, as I'm sure for many of you, has ups and downs throughout the year. There's a lot of uh, sorrows and joys and losses and gains. I'm sure. I think when, as we as Christians, when we look at our lives, when we give thanks, we reflect upon our lives. We always end up giving praise and thanks because we end up going back to the one treasure, the one source of joy, the one source of praise that we all have, and we realize is greater than every joy. And great enough for every sorrow that we have in this world. And that's, of course, our salvation in Jesus Christ, our life in Christ. Uh, he, he alone gives us so many abundant reasons to give thanks. As uh, Cindy and I, we reflect upon our, our year. We, we give thanks to God for not only him, for his son, but we give thanks to God for you, for this church family. We're grateful for all of you. You've been such a blessing to us in many ways. You've been our, our family, especially as uh, transplants from uh, outside of San Francisco here over these many years. We're just thankful for all of you dads and moms and uncles and aunts and uh, cousins and brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're, we're thankful for you. Uh, just praising God because uh, we just have a body of Christ. But most of all, of course, we give thanks because all these things are possible because Jesus Christ is our Savior, our Shepherd, and our Sovereign. It goes with, uh, he's the one who is the one who saves us. He's the one who guides and leads us, and he's the one who rules over us. Without him, uh, I think none of us would really have any reason to give praise and thanks. But... Uh, Hopefully you have something similar to share, and as you uh, enjoy your weekend with your family, that you would continue to do that. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49 is our text this morning, and we want to look at this text that is a, uh, just a beautiful uh, chapter in, in uh, Isaiah. It's uh, one of those powerful chapters. You, you, when you read through these words, you say, wow, that sounds familiar. It's probably because you read in the New Testament. And you probably think of it as a New Testament text, but it's probably it found its origin here in Isaiah 49. This text, this morning's text, reminds us of the reason we give thanks and praise to God. 
It calls for all of the earth, this passage, to rejoice and to give thanks and to praise. It contains for us, though, what's called the second of the four servant songs of Isaiah. I'll just kind of throw it up there for you real quickly. You can kind of see the, the different servant songs. We've already looked at chapter 42. We're going to look at chapter 49 today. We'll look at chapter 50 next week, and then we'll, we'll eventually get to that most powerful of all of the servant songs uh, that describe the suffering atonement of the servant, and we're going to see that in, in a few weeks. Uh, but we are in that section where we're looking at Isaiah 49. And Isaiah 49 is the beginning of a new section in Isaiah. We ended with chapter 48 last time, and we see that this whole section of, of 40 to 66 where God offers comfort to the nation Israel it breaks down in three parts. That there's comfort that comes through Israel's deliverance, particularly the deliverance from Babylonian captivity through uh, God's anointed Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. But in 49 to 57, uh, God, through the prophet Isaiah, moves a little bit further forward, beyond Cyrus, to the, uh, the far future of that we, they were, where the people of God would find comfort in Israel's deliverer, particularly this servant that we find in our uh, servant song today, that in Jesus, who is Jesus Christ, uh, that they would find not only a salvation from their captivity, which is uh, earthly pro- trouble, but salvation from their eternal trouble, uh, salvation from their sins. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13, at the end of what's called the servant song here, we see this phrase, and I, and I want to just read it for us. It says, shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Here is, we find the response to the comfort and, uh, to, to the response to the comfort and compassion of the Lord, and that is we ought to praise him. If you've experienced God's comfort, God's consolation, God's salvation, if you've known his compassion in your affliction, then you would join with all the earth in giving praise and giving shouting for joy in our God. And then I think this passage frames our outline uh, for today's passage. And we're going to give a basic three-point outline, but three reasons this morning we're going to look at that all the earth can rejoice. Three reasons that all the earth can rejoice in the comfort and compassion that the Lord has provided in his servant. Though Isaiah is written to the people of, uh, of Israel, the people of God in the, uh, the nation of Israel, it's written primarily for them in that day, in the days of Isaiah, this book is not just about Israel alone. It's not just for Israel alone, but it speaks in, to all nations. And this chapter is one of those chapters that speak powerfully to us who are beyond, outside of Israel, who are among the nations. So let's take a look at these three reasons then to give thanks to God. Hopefully there are three reasons that you give praise to God uh, this weekend. And so the first reason to be observed is in found in verse 1 to 6. And that is the Lord's calling of a servant. Uh, <laughs> I've been in a rush. Uh, before we look to the text, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray you open it up now. May you teach us from your word. May you cause us to uh, grow in our great appreciation for you, our Savior, our Holy One, in appreciation for your servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we ask for nothing more but that you would cause us to love you more as we come to know you more from your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord's calling of his servant is the first point we see in verse 1 to 6. And this servant song is written from the perspective 
of the point of view of the servant himself. He's speaking these words. And he's writing from the point of view of having completed his mission. He's sent to earth. He has a mission. But he's completed it. So a lot of times we'll see a lot of past tense verbs here. So he's completed it. And he's looking back on his mission. And as he looks back on his mission, he begins with describing his, his uh, in describing his calling, he describes his commission. What is his mission? What is his task that he has uh, accomplished upon the face of the earth? Well, look, read the first three verses. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Verse 1 here and, uh, describes how his, he was called. But he wasn't called like the prophets who were, they were kind of just living on earth, walking, doing, going about doing what they normally do. And then God speaks to them. God, the servant here says, he didn't call me after I was born. He called me before I was born. He called me from the womb. And here, notice too, he's addressing, uh, the servant, you would think he's addressing and telling all this to Israel, but he tells it to the islands, the peoples from afar. These are references to uh, the nations that are the farthest nations, the Gentiles. He wants the Gentiles, he wants people like you and me, people who are far away outside of Israel to listen to these words. Because what he's about to say about himself, about his calling, has great significance for them too. And so it begins with this description of how he's called from the womb. There's something different about this servant. He's not just like a normal, regular prophet of old. Those, those were great men. You think of Elijah and Elisha and Moses, wonderful, powerful men who spoke God's word. But this one's going to be called from the womb before he was even born. Not only is he called from the womb, but God says he's, gonna, he's going to name him. He's going to give him a name before he's born. Many times, most people get names after they're born. But here, this name was given before he's born. The name, of course, is significant in the Old Testament because a name would reflect a person's character, who he is, what he would do, what he would accomplish. We move on in this text, the description of his calling, his commission is that in verse 2, his mission involves a revelation of a powerful message. These words are descriptive. They're full of description. His words are going to be likened to a sharp sword, a select arrow, a choice arrow. You want to choose the the best sword, the best arrow, a a powerful and effective weapon to cut and pierce the souls of those who would hear him. So we say not only would he be born from the womb, he'd be given a name, he would, be, he would have a ministry of, of revealing a powerful message. But verse 3, the servant explains the purpose of his mission. That The ultimate purpose of his mission is what? Is the revelation of God's glory. It's the revelation of I will, in whom I will show my glory, says God of the servant. There are some, because in this, if you notice in verse 3, it says, he said to me, you are my servant Israel. And while you and I, New Testament days, we understand this is talking about Jesus. But still, for some people today, even today, who look at this passage and say, well, this is not referring to Jesus Christ. This is referring to Israel, the nation, that God's servant is the nation Israel. And they would look at them, and it seems definitely we see a servant Israel used in, in, uh, just kind of next to each other and, uh, to describe one another. And that is a, that's a good uh, that's a good basic interpretation, except we also want to apply this to the rules of context. And when we look at the context of this passage, we see that he, the servant cannot be 
the nation Israel because later on in verses 5 and 6, he's going to say that part of his mission is to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel may be gathered to him. So even verse 5 says that there's a distinction between the servant and Israel. So the servant here is not the nation of Israel, but yet the servant is identified as Israel. Why is that? Because remember, Jesus, as the Savior, as the, as the ruler, the sovereign king, he, as the king, is representative of the nation. He is all that Israel was called to be. Israel is called to be a blessing to the earth, and that they failed time and time again. But the servant who will come, who is going to be the representative of Israel, he will perfectly fulfill what Israel, the nation, failed to do. But the servant has been called to accomplish this one purpose, that is to bring glory to God, to reveal God's glory. But there's something odd that happens, a little unexpected twist to this description of the servant's mission. We find it in verse 4. Verse 4, but I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. So that's kind of unexpected, especially for the, from the Israelite perspective. They were expecting a triumphant servant, a triumphant Messiah. But here, the Messiah is basically saying, confessing, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength in nothing. It's all been vain, all that I've done. It's for nothing, he says, for vanity. The servant looks back at the end of his mission, and his description doesn't sound very good. It seems that his work was for nothing, for vanity. He came to bring God's salvation. He came to speak God's message. He came to reveal God's glory. And yet he says, it's been for nothing in vanity? Here we see that there's an indication of that at the end of the servant's ministry on earth, there is this uh, going to be an apparent failure of his ministry, an apparent vanity at all, that the world would look at and say, oh, what did he even come for? He couldn't have been the Messiah. He didn't accomplish anything. He failed in his tasks. There's this apparent failure in his tasks, this lack of visible change in the world. And yet, despite this lack of visible change, the servant trusts that God will give him justice and reward. In the Christian life, success is measured by faithfulness, and the results are left to God, right? It's not measured by numbers. And that's what the servant does here. He, he entrusts himself. He knows that his reward, his success, his, the results are going to be from the Lord God, his Father, now, all of this we just simply described, and I didn't really explain it to you, but I think many of you who are New Testament Christians understand that this is all perfectly descriptive of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, our Savior, isn't it? You know that he fulfilled these elements uh, of this uh, commission. He was called from the womb by the, uh, uh, according to the angel who explained it to, to both Mary and Joseph. He was given the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves before he was born. He came proclaiming the message of the gospel of God, that gospel that is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. He came to manifest the, the, great, the glory of God full of grace and truth. He came to, to, to bring salvation to the world. And although Jesus was in, received well by the crowds initially, eventually we know the story that the people of Israel uh, turned against him, the leaders 
turned against him. Instead of calling for his crowning, they called for his crucifixion. He preached the gospel. He revealed God's glory, but the people did not respond to his ministry. Jesus, John writes of Jesus in John 1.11 that he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Nothing. Vanity. He came as the servant who would die for the sins of mankind. He was faithful in obeying his father. In his death, victory over sin was accomplished. And what's more, God rewarded him. God uh, gave him, uh, exalted him. According to Ephesians 1, 20 and 22, God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age to come. So that was, that's his commission. He describes uh, this description of the servant perfectly fits with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There's another element of the servant's mission, this calling that he has that gives us reason to praise him. We see that, we see in verse 5 to 6, his vindication, his vindication. And in verse 5 and 6 we read, Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Although the servant would uh, suffer humiliation and death at the hands of men, he would ultimately be vindicated, wouldn't he? It says here that uh, not only did he come to uh, uh, bring salvation to Jacob, to Israel, but that in verse 6, God promised to make the servant a light to the nations. It's too small a thing. It's too little just to save his, the nation Israel. I'm going to also make you a light, a light of salvation to the nations. So that what? So that the salvation is not just going to be uh, uh, for only the nation of Israel, the geographical land. But it's going to reach the end of the earth. All over the world is this salvation going to reach. And by the way, you should just highlight this verse if you haven't highlighted this verse in your Bible. This is one of those great promises. This is the promise in the Old Testament of God's promise to bring salvation to us Gentiles. This book, you know, <laughs> you know if we, a lot of times people think that Old Testament just speaks of God's salvation for the, for the nation Israel, focus on the Israel. But there are so many verses just like this one that speak to God's salvation that goes to the, to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And, of course, this is in Jesus Christ's prophecy here. His vindication has been fulfilled. After his death and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ was carried by his apostles, not only to the Jews first, but then when it became clear that they would, they would continue to reject him, the apostle Paul began to, to bring that message to the Gentiles. And from then on, that message kept going on and going, being passed on and passed on till the gospel of Jesus Christ has been carried out to the ends of the world, to people like you and me, all the way to San Francisco, California, where we could hear the gospel today. Each time a soul upon the earth is saved, Christ's mission is vindicated. His apparent failure at the, at the cross is declared to be a success resoundingly because here a dead person, a dead person in sin has been brought back to life. And you and I are in this room, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a dead person who has been brought to life. 
And that's an amazing miracle because the one who is life was put to death for our sake in our place. Well, the calling of the servant of the Lord is a reason I think we all uh, should, <laughs> the whole earth can give thanks and rejoice over. Uh, this vindication of the servant is further developed in verses 7 to 13 of our chapter as we find the Lord then making a series of promises to the servant. And this is, leads us to our second uh, <clears throat> reason to rejoice and give thanks to God, and that is the Lord's promise to his servant. So the Lord's promise to us. Here's, here we see the Lord uh, affirming his commitment to the ministry of the servant. He makes two general, purpose, two, prom, two general promises to uh, his, uh, his servant here in this text. First of all, we find the, the promise in verse 7. <clears throat> the Lord promises the servant a worldwide recognition, that he will have worldwide recognition. Yes, uh, there is a apparent... Uh, failure and vanity, but this vindication, these promises that will be vindicated by a worldwide recognition of the servant in verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, this is God speaking then, to the despised one, this is the servant, this is the one who is humiliated, to the one abhorred by the nation, that is hated by the nation of Israel, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Although he was abhorred and despised by the, the nation, he came as to serve, to even to be a servant of rulers. One day, God promises that the rulers of this earth will in turn serve the servant himself. They will stand before him in reverence and, re, and bow before him. They will bow, in respect, they will bow before him in reverence. And this will take place because why? Because the Lord is faithful. Because that means that he keeps his promises. That what God promises he's going to do. And God says, I've chosen my servant. And all that I've said about the servant, even up to this point, and we're going to see into the rest of Isaiah, all of that's going to come true. All of it's going to come to pass. Not only in his first coming, but also at his second coming. Of course, money, the promise of the servant being served by the rulers of this earth still awaits to be fulfilled. When we look around the world, our rulers of the world today are not bowing before the Lord. They're not paying him the respect that is due his name, even though they are in their place because of the sovereign authority of God. But one day, every ruler will bow the knee to him. In fact, not just every ruler, but everyone will bow the knee. Philippians 2, 9 11 speak of how God has highly exalted him, right? of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every knee, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, we see further confirmation of this in Revelation 19, verse 16. When Jesus returns at his second coming, the description of Revelation 19, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. What's that name? He is king of kings and lord of lords. Of all the kings of the earth, of all the lords of the earth, of all the presidents and premiers and, and queens and kings, rulers, he is above them all. He is their king. He's their lord. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus will be this ruler of rulers, king of kings and lord of lords. He will one day, when he returns, he will establish his kingdom on earth, where it's centered in Jerusalem. And he will sit on that throne and he will rule. And all the rulers of the earth in that particularly in the millennial, uh, millennium, are going to go to him, and they're going to seek 
salvation from him. They're going to recognize him for who he truly is. There's going to be a worldwide recognition God promises to him. In verse 8 to 13, he gets a, there's another uh, promise that God makes to his servant. And that is the worldwide return to the servant. A worldwide return. And in verse 8 to 12, the Lord promises that people from around the world, all across the world, are going to return to him, going to return to the Lord. They're going to recognize him, and they're going to go to him <clears throat> for this salvation. God will enable this return. And he continues to speak to the servant in verse 8 to, thir- eight to <clears throat> 13, but we'll read 8 to 12. Thus says the Lord. Saw it in verse 7. Now we see it again in verse 8. <clears throat> in, a, in a favorable time I've answered you, and a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorch, <clears throat> scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road. My highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar. And lo, these will come from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Sinim. <clears throat> As we read these verses, we, key, verse 8 is a, is a key verse here. God promises a future day of salvation, a, day, a favorable time. A favorable year even. Where he will give the servant as a covenant to the people. The mention of the people in the land here tells us that, again, God has Israel in mind. His chosen nation. As a, you know, part of why we are dispensationalists is because we take a literal hermeneutic. uh, to We try try to interpret scripture literally. And when we see these mentions of the people in the land, we, we understand that God's... Most, the most natural understanding is that he's talking about the land of Israel. He's talking about the, the nation, the people of Israel. And so God has promised to make the servant into a covenant of the people. It was used, this phrase is used earlier in Isaiah 42, verse 6, the first servant song, remember. And there he had given him as a covenant to the people there, also as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to, to bring out prisoners from the dungeons and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So uh, it's a covenant that God would make a covenant with the people through his servant so that where they would be able to be set free and where they who had lived in darkness would be able to see the light. Those same promises are made here in reiterating verse chapter 49. The servant is the personification and fulfillment of this new covenant promises that we find uh, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. That he had made Israel, but though it was made to Israel... It has its far application to all of the world. It will lead Israel and lead us to find salvation, to salvation. And as the Lord says, he promised that wherever his people are, wherever they are, no matter how far, no matter if they've been taken captive, no matter if they've even forgotten who they are, wherever they are, he's going to one day bring them all back to land. He will eliminate all obstacles to their return. He will guide them back because for the people and the nation of Israel, their promises that he, God has made to them are centered upon this land. 
but it's gonna bring, he's going to bring them back to this land where, but he's going to not just bring them back into the land, but he's going to bring them back in their hearts too with a heart of repentance. But <clears throat> while the promise here is focused on the people of Israel, the application of these promises, especially since the servant is a light to the nations, it extends to the whole earth, right? It goes to the whole earth. We see hints of that throughout this text. <clears throat> the new covenant, we, we know that the new covenant promises have been extended to us as Gentiles and nations. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul will quote this verse. This, verse, this is one of those verses that are quoted and may be familiar to you. It's quoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul, speaking to the Gentile Corinthians, they're, those are all, they're all Gentiles there, He's speaking to them, and he quotes this verse, applying it to them, telling them that now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. That salvation, God's favor, extends to the Gentiles. But it will be fulfilled completely as promised in Isaiah for Israel, for the nation of Israel, at coming of Christ this, the second time. Because the land, even at this point, is still awaiting a restoration by the servant. Even though Israel is back in the promised land, they do not possess it to its full extent as described in the Old Testament. But one day they will completely possess the land that was promised to them, promised to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But until then, there's an opportunity for the whole world to turn to the servant for salvation. And this promise gives reason for us then to praise God because there's going to be this worldwide return. It's not just for the people of God, uh, to the chosen nation of Israel, but for people of God everywhere. And so that's why verse 13 says, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Notice that this isn't just a worldwide praise. This is a universal praise that's calling for. This is in the heavens, there's going to be praise. On earth, there's going to be praise. In between the heavens and the earth, that is the mountains, kind of the peaks of this earth, there's going to be praise. All heaven and earth and mountains, wherever in between, everyone who dwells in those places, all are called to worship. All are called to praise and rejoice and shout and give thanks. Why? Because the Lord has comforted his people. Because the Lord's comfort. Because the Lord's compassion. The whole earth is going to give praise to God. And hopefully we've all known this. As people of God, we, we've experienced this, right? We've experienced God's comfort. Have you experienced God's comfort? Have you experienced God's compassion in your life? This is where you say amen. 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 Yes. You know, we've all experienced it. And for this reason, we should, sh we should shout. Sometimes, we, you know, in our culture, we, we worship God. Every cult church culture has a different worship style. We worship, well, our worship style is reverence. That's good. That's our worship style, reverence. That's good, right? We ought to worship God in reverence. But sometimes we ought to worship God with shouting joy. And uh, that's, the, that's the, but not all the time because that makes us all feel a little uncomfortable, I'm sure. <laughs> But we should. It says shout for joy. Give praise. Anyways. Of course, if you know, all this is possible because it's been through his servant. 
all the, the comfort and compassion that the Lord has shown to you and me is through his servant, Jesus Christ. And this should give us a reason to shout and rejoice. There's a third reason. There's a third reason that all the earth, not only is this promise to the servant, is, but there's a third reason where we, all the earth can give rejoice in the, in the Lord and give thanks to him. And that's the found in verse 14 to 26. And then we find this, uh, call it the Lord's assurance of his servant. That the Lord assures that what is going to take place with regards to the servant, particularly for his nation, Israel, are going to take place, are going to happen. Verse 14, 6, God's speech now turns from speaking to the servant to speaking to the nation Israel. Remember, this, uh, this whole section, latter half from Isaiah 40, 66, is often spoken from the perspective of uh, when it's speaking to the nation Israel, it's to the people who are going to be in captivity. And that's kind of a really funny thing why God does, but God explained that early. He says, I'm going to tell you things before they happen so that you know that I did it and not anybody else. So that's why he often tells them, uh, this is, He's writing to a people that are not in captivity yet about how they are going, what's going to happen to them, or what he, they need to hear when they are in captivity. And so he expects that Israel is going to respond in captivity to God's promises with doubt, with fear. And in response to those doubtful fears, God gives them these two assurances. We find, first of all, in verse 14 to 20, that he, will, he gives them the assurance that he will not forget nor forsake you. He will not forget nor forsake you. Verse 14, we see the, the doubt, first of all. It's just, verse 14 is the doubt that is expressed by Zion, by Israel. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. <laughs> I don't think we need to explain that much, because I think when we all find ourselves in trials, we, we are tempted to think this. God, you've forgotten me. God, you've forsaken me. Especially when the trials get difficult. But verse 15 to 20 is God's answer to this doubtful fear. If you ever feel that God's forsaking you or you're afraid that God's forgotten you, meditate and read this text. And you see the faithfulness of God to his people. Verse 15, 19, these are beautiful words that describe God's faithfulness to his people. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion for the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are, are continually before me. Your builders hurry, your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land, surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants. And those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, The place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. And these are just all very just beautiful pictures of what's going to take place in the, in the time of the millennial kingdom. But the response to God, Israel's fear is answered in verse 15 and 20. And God answers them with a picture, a picture of one of humanity's closest bonds, that of a mother and their child, particularly a mother and a nursing child. In general, a, a mother of a nursing child is not going to forget their kid, right? They just don't. They are complete, that child is completely dependent upon that mom. That mom is, is 
focused on providing and caring for their child. They, they're not going to forget about their kid, okay? Even when they're dead tired, without sleep, for hours on end, or they're, they're frazzled and everything's falling apart everywhere else, but they will not generally forget their child. They are focused on them. But yet God says, they might forget you. If even that rare circumstance that a mom is going to forget her nursing child, I love this promise. He says, I will not forget you. God promised, I will not forget you. God does not forget. He will not forget his promises to you. He will not forget his choice of you. Just as he does not forget his choice of, of his servant, he does not forget his choice of you. He does not forget his choice of Israel in this particular case. He says, and he, he moves on to other pictures. Though God is, he says, you, I've written you on my palms. <laughs> and many of you do that, right? You want to remember something, what do you do? You write it on your palm. You see people walking around, they got things on their hands. Like, what do you do right there? Well, because they want to remember something. God has written you on his palms. It's close by, always there to look. He says, their walls, they're concerned about the walls of Jerusalem being all fallen down. And remember when Nehemiah goes back, he, he spies out the land, he sees the walls, and he starts weeping. He's, just kind of, he's devastated by it all. But the walls that are all crushed and crumbled and fallen down, they're always before God. He always sees what goes on in the life of his chosen nation. He's very much aware. They're continually in his sight. And the, he goes on to further promises that God will ensure that Jerusalem is rebuilt. He's going to be the one who hastens her builders. He's going to be the one who chases away her destroyers. And he's going to make sure that the Israelites will return to Jerusalem to such an extent that the city is going to be overcrowded. Again, this return of the Israelites, it waits for the return of Christ at his second coming. This is still in the future. For even in the return from the Babylonian exile, that only, was only a small remnant of 50,000 people. Even today, when we look at the nation of Israel, many Israelites still live outside of Israel. They live in other countries. They live in our country, the United States even. And though it has been 2,700 years since this promise was made, God's assurance still stands, particularly for the nation of Israel. He will not forget nor forsake Israel. These promises that he made to them, he will keep. And those of us who study the Bible, this is, this is not just a promise to spiritual Israel, not just to the church, but this is to, first and foremost, to the nation, his, the earthly, uh, those, the, uh, uh, the people who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God promised that he will not forget nor forsake them, verse 14 and 20, but he continues to, ex Israel continues to express their, their fears and doubts in the next verse, verse 21. For which God will then provide a second assurance to them of his servant. And then he promises in verse 21 and 26 that he will provide for you. So at the very end he, of the previous, of verse 20 or so, he promised that he's going to bring all his children back. All the, Israel has been bereaved of her children. All her children who died, they, they were not, uh, they were in captivity. Many of them were separated as slaves. So they're, they uh, don't have many people, basically. But God says, I'm going to bring back all the people. I'm bring all the children of Jerusalem, all the people of Israel back to land. But in verse 21, they, even as he promised that, there's a doubt in their heart. Verse 21, then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me? Since I have been bereaved of my children and a barren, an exile, and a wanderer. And who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? 
Israel's going to be confused, really. They're going to not understand where did all these people come from. She knew that she was in captivity. She was bereaved. She didn't have any children. She was barren, exiled. She was described as a, as a barren woman. She was described as an exile, someone who had been cast out of the land. She was described as a wanderer, a stranger. All people without resources and hope, scattered to the nations, basically left for dead. She wonders, where are all these people going to come from, Lord? Again, the Lord assures her that it will be he who provides for the return of her children. He is going to bring back all the Israelites back to land. And he does so in verse 22 to 26. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians, and their princesses your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk with their own blood as with the sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. And your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God here assures his people that the Mighty One, the Almighty God, is going to be the one who delivers his people from the enemies. They're all scattered away. They're all slaves entrapped in other places. They've all probably forgotten who they are. But God says, I'm going to bring them all back. And God says how he's going to do it? By his might. And he's going to do it because he's going to use the kings of the earth. They're going to bring them back. He's going to bring the, use the princes, the rulers of this world. They're going to bring them back. He's going to basically use the nations of the earth to bring back the people of God to the land. You know, for a long time after, uh, uh, after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, there was no nation of Israel. You know, many of you know that. Well, so hopefully most of us know that history. Uh, but it's until uh, 1940, after World War, 1947, I think, after World War II, the nation of Israel did not exist. But God used the nations of this world to establish back in the promised land, centered around Jerusalem, land so that the people of God, the Jewish people, who were basically, you know, Hitler tried to exterminate them all in World War II, had a place to return. God used the kings and princes of this world. And that's even, that was a small taste of what God's going to do in the Millennium Kingdom. He's going to use the rest of the rulers of this world. He's going to bring every Israelite, every child of God, every child of Israel, every sons and daughter of Jacob back to this land. And, they, and for now, they wait upon him for that to happen. But he says, he assures them, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. He will bring it to pass. That's his assurance to them. And then he describes, can the prey be taken from mighty man, the captive's tyrant, even the captive's a mighty man. He's going to be the one who's going to take it away from the, any mighty man. There's no one greater than God. And there's no tyrant that is greater than, than God. Power-wise. Power <laughs> and God's going to bring every son and daughter of Jacob back to the land. It depends wholly upon God. And he does so, why? So that they will know that it's not because of their 
power, nor their wisdom, nor their strength. He does so so that they will know that I am the Lord, he says. He does so so that they will know that those who hopefully wait for me will not be ashamed. He says, I will save your sons. How You don't understand why, how it's going to happen? Well, I'm going to do it, the Lord says. There'll be no doubt at the second coming of Christ that all flesh in this world are going to know that he says, as he says, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer. These assurances that God makes to Israel are for them, for the, those in captivity. And even Israelites today have this promise and this hope that they're still waiting for this to be fulfilled. But God promises them that he will bring it to pass. He will save them. But these assurances, he will not forget you nor forsake you. He will provide for you. These are truths about God, not just for the people of Israel, are they? I think we can think of many New Testament passages where these promises are made for you and me today. Hebrews 13, 5, when God says, I will never desert you, nor will ever forsake you. God provides to bring your salvation to completion. He'll provide for you. We think of Philippians 3, 20 and 21, where our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He's going to transform. He's going to bring our salvation to completion in Christ. These are all the assurances that come from having uh, the servant as our Savior and our Lord. Well, I hopefully, and hopefully for Israel, it would have been a cause for rejoicing. And for, for, I think for us as the people of God, we can see that if God is faithful to his chosen nation, Israel, as he's promised, he's going to bring it to pass, then he is certainly faithful, going to be faithful to all the promises he makes for you and me to, who are as Gentiles. And the most powerful, of course, in this chapter in this uh, chapter is this great joy that all the earth has to rejoice because this servant that is promised, the Messiah that's going to come, is a light for the nations. He's not just a light for Israel. He's a light for you and me. He's a light for Americans. And we see that this, uh, this promise was applied by the early church to Jesus Christ. In Acts 13, I'll end with this verse, 46 to 47, Paul's first missionary journey. They had arrived at uh, uh, Pisidian Antioch, and they had preached the gospel there, and they, people wanted to hear it again. So they went back the next week to preach in the synagogue, and they preached. But then people started, people, a, lot of people, a lot of Gentiles started responding. There was jealousy among the Jews, and so they basically just caused a, uh, started causing trouble. But we read in verse 47, but Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. He's talking to the Jews, the Jewish people in that city. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. Notice that. The Lord commanded us to do this. And then what does he do to say how the Lord commanded us? He quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8, or verse 6. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Here we see that even the early, the, the early church understood that Jesus was a, not just to bring, bring salvation to the Jewish people, but he came to be a light to the nations. And we understand that Jesus Christ is that servant. He is the one whom the Lord's comfort, the Lord's compassion are shown to the world. 
as he died in our place so that we could know the forgiveness of God that comes through faith in him, that we can know the peace of God that comes from having a re- being reconciled to our God through his son. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our reason to shout and give thanks uh, this Thanksgiving and everything else that you may give thanks to God for. You give thanks because of Jesus Christ. May, uh, may this Thanksgiving season, as we begin and pretty soon, our Advent, our Christmas season, may, can, may our lives be continually filled with joy and thankfulness because of this servant who came, the light to nations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this glimpse of your purpose and plans for your servant. Lord, we were reminded today that the scriptures are not about us. They are about you, about your plans for the world, about your plans for your servant that was revealed not only to Israel but revealed to all of us today. But, Lord, we give you thanks and praise because your plans for your servant, your plans for your son is a blessing to all of us. We thank you, Father, for sending your son on his mission to this earth. Thank you for calling him to be a light to the nations, to bring salvation to all, to all the ends of the earth. Father, thank you for causing these captive souls, these blind men and women, to know freedom, to see light through faith in your son. Thank you, Lord, for accomplishing your purposes. Thank you, Father, for your promises that you make and how you are faithful. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you that the promise you make to your chosen nation, Israel, you will fulfill one day. And Lord, we pray that when that, when that time comes, that we will find and we will join along with Israel in giving you even more praise for the completion of your purposes in this world. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Father, that, uh, that he is our message, that he is our uh, source of joy. May this season of Thanksgiving and Christmas bring up many opportunities for us to share and tell others of the, of the hope that is in us the source of our joy. Lord, may we, even as we reflect upon it, as uh, that you would lead us, that we would give you praise, that we'd even shout for joy because of your goodness towards us in Christ. Lord, thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Uh, have a wonderful weekend, and uh, it's, uh, looking forward to Christmas uh, celebration with all of you. You're dismissed.